Welcome to the Calvary Chapel South Bay Sermon Podcast. We are a large, multi-ethnic, multi-generational church in Los Angeles, California, and we'd love to have you visit us for a service if you're in the L.A. area. Visit ccsouthbay.org to learn more about us and to find out service times. If you have any questions, shoot us an email at hello at ccsouthbay.org. Enjoy today's sermon, and we hope to see you at church soon. I have a little test for you. Do you know what you just sang? Anybody shout it out if you know it? That was the Apostles' Creed. Amen? That's what the Apostles believed in. That's what they believed in. Do you notice what was missing there? I believe in the Democrats. For the Republicans. Or the United States. Or the World Court. Or the UN. I believe in Jesus. Amen? And the reason I say that is this passage that we're in, the Sadducees are now going to come into view and they're going to mount a plot and that plot is against Jesus. That is Satan's plan. Satan's plan is to erase Jesus, to erase the resurrection to erase the church and the power of the church. The power of the church is in the resurrected Lord and his word. And so as we look at this passage this morning, as we pick up in Luke's gospel in chapter 20 and verse 20, and we finish chapter 20, we begin a little bit of chapter 21, remember that that is the enemy's plan. The plot of the enemy is to erase the name of Jesus. It's always been that. It's still that. And that is what we face as the church today. That's the plot. Let's get rid of Jesus. Let's get rid of the power of the church, which is in the resurrected Lord. Let's get rid of the word of God and let's focus on other things. Church, we have to stay true to the Lord Jesus. Let's pray together and we'll pick up in verse 20. Father, we come and we deposit ourselves before your throne of grace for you to speak to your church. There was a purpose for the plot of these men then and there is a purpose that the enemy has for the plot to erase you, Jesus. Lord, you are the main thing. You are the Savior. You are Lord. You're the resurrected one. You're the firstborn of the dead. You're the lion of the tribe of Judah. You are the king of kings. You're the only Lord of lords. And we worship you. Instruct us through your word, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Luke 20, verse 20. I will remind you that because we teach God's word chapter and verse, if you happen to have children here today, we will at times get a tad PG-13, so make sure that your children are prepared to maybe hear something that uh, is a little bit on that edge, because Jesus does deal with, as does the Bible, deal with subjects uh, that are certainly for more mature uh, listeners, and that's why we have children's ministry, so... Uh, Just be aware of that. In verse 20, and so they watched him, and they sent spies 
who pretended to be righteous. The world is still filled with people who pretend to be righteous. That they might seize on his words in order to deliver him to the power and the authority of the governor. And then they ask him, saying, Teacher, we know that you say and teach rightly. Kind of a platitude. Trying to speak to Jesus, gain a little bit of uh, ground there against him by acknowledging, yeah, you speak rightly. And then they're going to try and use that against him. And you do not show personal favoritism, but teach the way of God in truth. Here comes the question. Here comes the question, church. Probably some of you have asked this question recently. Or maybe you've asked a subsequent question, is it okay to take the vaccine? Is it right to be this way or that way politically? The issue here is a government that was clearly not favorable to Judaism or to Christianity. Notice how Jesus speaks to this issue. Is it lawful for us to pay taxes to Caesar or not? But he perceived their craftiness and said to them, Why do you test me? Show me a denarius. Now, so to put that into perspective, that would be a single coin worth a single day's wages. It would be the equivalent if you had a normal job of an entire day's pay. Whose image and inscription does it have? And they answered and said, Caesar's. And he said to them, Render therefore unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. But they could not catch him in his words, and in the presence of the people, and they marveled at his answer, and they kept silent. Jesus is now in the final week of his life. He's now confronted first by people who were religious legalists. That was the Pharisees. And now the libertines, you might say those who were of a more liberal bent, more intellectual, the people that were maybe, you might say, more intelligent, more learned, the Sadducees. But these two groups were found together in a single place called the Sanhedrin, which was at that day and time the religious court of the Jewish people. When God had laid down the law, so to speak, as he gave first the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, and all the things contained in it, the Jewish people had come up with roughly 613 individual commandments and laws that must be kept. And so to decide those matters, which were, by the way, matters of life and death, often, they established a group of 72 men, plus any current high priest and anyone who was alive who had previously been the high priest. So at this time, there were 74 men. 
most of them were Pharisees. But an elitist group were the Sadducees. They were very much after their own self-interest because Jesus had just turned over the money changers' tables. Very often, those were controlled by the Sadducees. They did not believe in the resurrection. They did not believe in angels. They did not believe in demons. They only believe in science. Some of you got it. Those people have been around a long time. If it can't be found in a science book, if it can't be rationalized, if it can't be made into something that you can prove, in other words, they didn't believe in the supernatural. They didn't believe in the miraculous. And so it is these guys who are now going to ambush Jesus. The words used here, spies, it's only used here in the New Testament, and it means to lie in wait or sit as you were going to ambush something, to hide in a way that no one would know that you were coming. In other words, they were pretending. They were hiding behind their intellect. They were hiding their true intent. They were, in essence, hiding their own wickedness. But notice that Jesus actually picks up on this, and he doesn't answer their question the way they want it answered. He answers it with the truth. The Bible is true, and what it says will always be true, so that as you think on this, as they try and ambush Jesus, because the plot is to dismiss Jesus. They want Jesus' reputation ruined. They, they want to look at this man and say, this man is not God because he is about to go to the cross. And if the man that goes to the cross is not the sinless lamb of God, then the sacrifice is useless. It's just one man dying for another man. But if the sinless one is on the cross and it is God himself that dies, then that sacrifice is sufficient. So they're trying to make it so that Jesus is not God. Can I tell you that that is still the argument today? People will readily acknowledge that Jesus was a good man, did good things, taught nice things for us to do. Love your neighbor as yourself. There's hardly anybody on the face of the earth that doesn't agree with that. Ultimately, if you ask somebody, should you love your neighbors? Oh, yeah, of course. They will probably even be able to tell you who said it. The question is, do you believe that it came from God? Or do you think it came from the lips of just another really nice guy named Jesus? He perceived their craftiness. You see, this whole thing was a test. And why is that important? Because Jesus ferrets this out. He says, you're trying to test me. Why do you test me there in verse 23? You see, they wanted to find him guilty of something to hand him over to Rome. That was their whole intent. They were trying to get him to say something that would be punishable with death. 
And Jesus is going, you have any idea who you're talking to? Do you know who I am? Why do you test me? You see, the, the test, in essence, was this incredible picture that we ought to understand very, very, very well. So are you going to go against Rome? Are you going to say we shouldn't pay taxes? Do you see how they're framing this question? So that if Jesus answers it, no, man, Rome, evil, wicked, don't give them two cents. Guess what Jesus is guilty of? Sedition. What's the payment for sedition? Death. Now here's why I want to speak to you for a minute. We have these same people alive, and unfortunately some of them are in the church. Running around saying foolish, ignorant things like Christians shouldn't pay taxes. Because the government's wicked. It's evil. Can I ask you a question? Do you think Rome was more wicked than the U.S.? I think it was. And I think I can prove that with history books. Notice how Jesus responds. Show me a denarius. Whose image was on it? It was the image of Tiberius Caesar. In essence, Jesus was giving them a lesson in civics. To expound on that a little bit, I want you to keep your finger here in Luke 20, and I want you to flip over to Romans 13. This is the writing of the Apostle Paul about 30 years later. Now it's no longer Caesar Augustus, it's Caesar Nero, who on levels of wickedness was ten times more wicked than Caesar Augustus. Augustus was a great guy compared to Nero. Nero came from a really rotten family, and he was the rottenest egg of the rotten family. That's when Paul is writing, verse 1, Let every soul be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God. Can I tell you that whether God directly appointed our last president or our current president, that God knew full well who was going to be president of the United States of America? Your Bible declares that very plainly. Here's what it says. In essence, God gives us his choices. Ultimately, that's why it's so important that you as Christians actually exercise your right to vote because you get a little part in saying, hey, I believe it would be better that this person who has godly values gets elected, but it ends there. And the authorities that exist are appointed by God. And therefore, whoever resists the authority Resist the ordinance of God, and those who resist will bring judgment on themselves. Is that plain enough for everyone here today? The reason that we follow the laws of the land, the government, just as Jesus told the disciples, render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar, and unto God the things that are God, is that God actually appoints governments. 
Ultimately, he is sovereign over the entire universe. He's not taken aback by anything that man does. For rulers are not a terror to good works, but to evil. When's Paul writing? The time of Caesar Nero, the most wicked Caesar, maybe except for Caligula. This is a wicked, 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 wicked emperor. And Paul's saying, obey him. Do what is good, and you'll have praise from the same. For he is God's minister to you for good. But if you do evil, be afraid. For he, who is that he? The government does not bear the sword in vain. Church, do you really want me to stand up here and have to decide who needs to die via the death penalty because they murdered somebody? I think not. Do you want me to have to stand up here and judge rightly between two people who have something where somebody stole something from somebody else and I have to determine, well, that person needs to be punished in this way or that? You see, God had given that opportunity to the Jewish people. They had enacted all these laws and they had gotten to the place to where God said, this is not going to work for you anymore because the Lord is not the center of your lives. And because the Lord is not the center of your lives, we're going to appoint governments kings and kingdoms to take up that responsibility, it is they who do not bear the sword in vain. And therefore, you must be subject, not only because of wrath, but because of conscience sakes. And because of this, you, here it is, also pay taxes. For they are God's ministers attending continually to this very thing and therefore render to all their due. Taxes to whom taxes are due, custom to whom customs are due, fear to whom fear, and honor to whom honor. Church, I could give you a hundred things in the blink of an eye that we do, that you could probably take up the case, well, it could be this way or that way. If you look around the sanctuary, you're going to see a bunch of red signs up there above the doors. Those are nuclear exit signs. They cost about $2,000 a piece. I'm pretty sure that you guys sitting in here right now don't have really any reason to have those, but what if the building catches on fire? And you can no longer see the exits. Well, you could say we could have built the church for a whole lot less money if we'd just gotten rid of those things. Or how about the handicapped parking stalls that pretty much surround this entire building? They're kind of excessive. About two-thirds of them go empty almost every service. How about the voice-activated fire alarm that's in here? How about the fire sprinklers? You think that didn't cost a few hundred thousand dollars? Oh, but we could send missionaries out. Why are those things there? Because God established governments for our safety. So now push that to COVID. Why do you suppose we're wearing masks? Encouraging you to get vaccinated. Because that is the best information that we have from the people who govern us. And they are not a threat to those who do good. They are a threat to those who do evil. So be careful about what laws 
you think we should break. Because from God's perspective, the answer is none. Unless it causes you to directly come in conflict with a command from the Lord, we are to obey the government that God has placed over us. And so we shall in this church. Jesus himself addresses this. Paul addresses it. Does so here in Romans. Does it again in Timothy, as does Peter. So the apostles, Jesus himself, says to us, Render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar, and unto God the things that are God's. They're not a threat to you. They've been placed there for a reason. God may only know sometimes why we have the people that we have ruling over us, ruling over us. That's not saying that every one of them is innocent. It's certainly not saying that every one of them is godly. But remember what happened to the children of Israel when everyone did that which was right in their own eyes. Who did they end up with? Saul. We don't want a Saul. We want King Jesus. Amen? So he says, show me. Verse 27, then some of the Sadducees who denied that there was a resurrection came and asked of him. Now I love this. When you get defeated, the best thing to do is deflect. Change the question. Move on. This is exactly what the Sadducees are now going to do. They use this weird, weird story that we find picking up in verse 29. But it says there in verse 27 that they ask him a question. Verse 28, teacher, Moses wrote to us that if a man's brother dies having a wife, he dies without children, his brother should take his wife and raise up offspring with, for his brother. Now, let's just all admit, that's weird. Amen? I don't think I need to tell you what's being said here, but in case you missed it, this is you go grab your sister-in-law and you produce children with her. I need to remind you of the context. It's there in Deuteronomy 25, verses 5 and 6. If a brother dwells together and one of them dies and has no son, the widow of the dead man shall not be married to a stranger outside the family her husband's brother shall go into her and take her as his wife and perform the duty of the husband's brother to her. Again, same thing. That it shall be that the firstborn son that she bears will succeed the name of his dead brother and that his name may not be blotted out of all Israel. Really clear why this was said then. Because the Jewish people were in their infancy. They're coming out of the wilderness They are going to be God's chosen people. From them, you're going to have Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, ultimately Jesus, and the lineage of the Jewish people was absolutely imperative to that. And so God gives them this strange thing. Why? Because there were no social systems. There there wasn't a way that that person was going to be taken care of. And in fact, widows were often abused taken advantage of, stolen from, victimized, neglected. 
And so here comes the Sadducees' new little story. And you just, you just got to love this. You can all get out your little tiny violins, because here it comes. And now there were seven brothers. And the first took a wife and died without children. And the second took her as his wife. And he died childless. And then the third took her, and in like manner, and seven also, and they left no children and died. And last of all, the woman died also. You can, you can hear the violin. Now, this is not an actual story. This isn't an event. This is the Sadducees hypothesizing a very long, drawn-out situation that was not true, again with the intent to get Jesus to trip over his own tongue. It is, as we would say right now, a false equivalence. They're deflecting from one story. They're saying, well, let's talk about this. And if this is true, then that must also be true. If this is false, that is false. They're trying to get Jesus to say something to where, okay, if we can't believe you on this, then we can't believe you on that either. Very prevalent in our society right now, is it not? Notice verse 33. You just got a, this whole story of this woman's woes is amazing. And therefore, in the resurrection, whose wife does she become? Because she had sex with all seven of them. That's actually what it says. She was physically intimate with seven different men. Married to all of them. This is like Elizabeth Taylor right here. Right? And I'm trying to lighten the mood a little bit because this is kind of a crazy story. But this is the deal. They thought they had him. His answer was blunt. They were thinking, we got him now. We're going to ruin his character. We're going to ruin his witness. We're going to prove he's not God. He could speak with authority because he had actually been in heaven. Notice, Jesus answered, verse 34, and said to them, the sons of this age marry and are given in marriage. Now, so it's Valentine's Day, and I don't want to blow any of your thoughts about heaven and your future, so I hope I can square this away for everyone once we read what the Word has to say. But those who are counted worthy to attain that age, which age? The kingdom age, the age to come, and the resurrection from the dead, that would be those that are resurrected go to heaven one at a time to be absent from the bodies and be present with the Lord. Amen? So you're going to leave here. You're going to go there. If you were to die today, if you die in Jesus, here it comes. Neither marry nor are given in marriage. Now you're probably saying, well, you know, I'm not going to be married to my husband. I'm not going to be married to my wife when I get to heaven. The answer is technically, no, you are not. Why? We'll answer that in a moment. Nor can they die anymore. For they are equal to the angels and the sons of God, being sons of the resurrection. Now, this is the most anti-Islam, anti-Mormon passage 
that Jesus ever speaks. Because your hope is, as a faithful practitioner of Islam is that ultimately you will go to paradise where if you're a man, you get greeted by 72 virgins. It's also pretty, I would say, looked forward to in Mormonism as well, because if you're a man, you getting the clue here? If you're a man, you get your own planet. And all of your wives get to be there, and they are perpetually pregnant for all of eternity, producing spirit babies. Sorry, that's what they teach. That's what they teach. And Jesus says, no, 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 wait a second. That was all for earth. Procreation is for earth. It is not for heaven. So if you want to know exactly how much sex is going on in heaven, the answer is none. Zero. Zip. Nada. So if you're overly concerned here on earth, you might want to square that away now. Because you're going to be abstinent for eternity. Just saying. Why is that? Because our bodies will be changed. We're going to have heavenly bodies. Our minds will be changed. We're going to have heavenly thinking. We will actually love as the Lord loves. And we will love at such a capacity, we cannot even fathom the totality of that while we're here. The best expression we have of it here is our marriage relationships. But there, you are going to have the capacity to love the way the Lord loves. There will be no need for marriage in heaven. Now, does that mean that you're not going to know your wife or your husband? Absolutely not. You're going to be known as you were known here. You're going to love that way. But the love that you had here, the relationship you had here, Jesus actually says it. It will not be so when you get there. There will be no being married in heaven. You're going to love at such a great level that when you get there, you're going to go, oh, that's what you meant. That's how you intended for us to love in marriage. Instead of just having maybe a lot of phileo, a little bit of eros, and some agape, it's going to be all agape. Everything that you weren't here, you will be there. Every fault you had here will not go there. Every error that you had here will not exist in heaven. And so the Sadducees are going, oh man, what do we do now? You see, because in their rationalism, they're saying, well, that can't be. You know, you, you gave us leave a right marriage. Church. Jesus is squaring their, their minds away to where they're no longer thinking about earth. They're thinking about heaven. And I think that's the problem we face today. When we get our eyes focused on the things of this earth and we stop gazing to heaven and start recognizing in our own selves that what we have later is greater than what we have now, if we don't get that, then we start bemoaning what we have today instead of looking forward to what we have there. And church, God wants us to have our minds on things above. 
Jesus tells him, you err not knowing the scripture or the power of God. There in verse 29 of Matthew's gospel. He says, that's your problem. You don't even know what the Bible actually says. You don't know the power of God. There in Matthew twenty-two twenty-nine, Jesus is basically correcting him, and he, he claps back at them in that sense, to use a modern vernacular. He says, look, but even Moses showed in the burning bush, bush passage, the dead are raised. When he called the Lord God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, for he is not the God of the dead, but the God of the living, for all live in him. Now let me just help you understand this. Moses, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. When Moses met God at the burning bush, Jacob had been dead for 198 years. Isaac had been dead for 225 years. Abraham had been dead for 330 years, and yet Jesus is saying, they're all alive. How could that be? Because everyone actually is alive in eternity. The only question is where? If you're alive in faith, you're in the presence of the Lord. If you're not alive in faith, then you're very much alive in what Jesus called Hades. Everybody, ultimately, is going to spend eternity somewhere. The Sadducees are going, well, when you die, it's just over. Only your memories live on. It's not true. You live on. You're going to be very much alive. In eternity. Sadducees are thinking, well, no, they're all dead. Of course, of course, of course. For all live to him. Jesus said. You're giving, I'm giving you scripture now, he's saying to them. And then some of the scribes answered and said, teacher. Notice how they couldn't mess with this. Jesus is calling himself the son of David. The children of Israel had proclaimed him king. They had shouted Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is he who sits on the throne of King David. He's saying, yep, you're right. But after that, they dared not question him anymore, I'm guessing. (laughs) But he said to them anyway, can they say that Christ is the son of David? In other words, how can they say that he's David's son? Well, where was Jesus born? David's city. What throne would he sit on, according to Isaiah? David's throne. What did the 110th Psalm say as they began that march to get to the Hallel? He quotes from the 110th Psalm. Now David said of himself in the book of Psalms, The Lord said to my Lord... How can the Lord say to my Lord if they're not two different people? Sit at my right hand. Make your enemies your footstool. And therefore, David calls him Lord. How is he then his son? Well, he's Messiah. That's how. He's God incarnate in human flesh. He's challenging their thinking. David 
freely acknowledged that Messiah would be his Lord. You see, Jesus was speaking directly to them. And basically, what's going on here is they were being put in their place. Kind of, you, you, kind of the thinking, you might want to quit while you're ahead, or in this case, behind. Messiah would be the royal priest. He would be the eternal priest. Bringing those two things together that Abraham saw in Melchizedek when he met with him. The rightful heir, the king, the royal priest, the one who brings peace. And so they're now in that place where they can't deny these things. Jesus is standing right before them saying, look, it's me, it's me, it's me. By the end of the week, he's going to be hanging on a cross. And he'll cry out from that cross, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. That's the message of the gospel. That Christ came to seek and save the lost. And then in the hearing of all the people, verse 45, he said to his disciples, beware of the scribes. Now, who was it that just questioned him? The scribes. You might want to quit while you're ahead, because Jesus always has the last word. Who desire to go around in long robes and love greetings in the marketplaces, the best seats in the synagogue, and the best places at the feast. Who devour widows' homes. For the pretense of making long prayers, these will receive the greater condemnation. He's looking at him like, hey guys, you might want to listen up. You've been doing all this talking about this widow that was married to seven different guys. I got a message for you about widows. The first four verses of the next chapter, remember these chapters and verses were not in the original text. So the next four verses, which we find in chapter 21, are actually Jesus illustrating this point for a last point in this particular message. He's proving who he is. And so he says to them, and he looked up. Now, what has he just said? You guys, the scribes and the Pharisees, love to have the best seats at the feast. You parade around, making sure everybody sees what you do. You go through all these fancy rituals. You're dressed in your finery. It is, in fact, reported by the Jewish historian Josephus, who was also a Roman, that they literally hired little tiny bands to go in front of them with little trumpets and, I'm about to give to the Lord. Come check it out. Now, they're in Solomon's Ports, the southern end of the Temple Mount, this colonnaded area where the Sanhedrin meets. So who did we meet first? Pharisees, part of the Sanhedrin. The Sadducees, part of the Sanhedrin. Scribes, they were the record keepers of the Sanhedrin. They're all there. And so to illustrate this point, Jesus, and he looked up and saw the rich putting their gifts into the treasuries, and he saw also a certain poor widow putting in two mites. Truly, he said, I say to you that this poor widow has put in more than all. For all of these, Pharisees, Sadducees, scribes, leaders of the Jewish people, that's who Jesus is, and they're right there. You, you, you wonder why by the end of the week Jesus is dead. From a human perspective, 
Uh, He was making everybody pretty upset right now. That this poor widow has put in more than all for these out of their abundance have put in offerings for God. But she, out of her poverty, put in all of the livelihood. That word is the Greek word bios. It means her whole life went into that offering basket that she had. Now, to give you a sense of what this was, there were 13 trumpet-shaped boxes. They had a horn on the top, made out of brass, with a box underneath, and two of them were marked for the poor and for the sacrifices. This woman is standing before these boxes, and she makes it to the one that you would think she would put maybe one of her two coins in. She herself is poor, well, I'll only give 50% of what I have and I'll put in one coin into the box for the poor. I can certainly identify with that. The inference here is in the original language. She took both coins after contemplating it and she took her whole life, everything she had, and she put it into the one marked for the sacrifices which only went to the Lord. She gave everything she had to the Lord. And it's a spiritual picture. It's this woman getting what the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and the scribes weren't getting. Jesus wants all of us. He wants the whole of you. The truth be told, he doesn't actually need our money. It already belongs to him. Amen? The earth and the fullness of it Scripture says, is the Lord's. If he wanted to simply withhold it all and keep it for himself, he could do that. He doesn't need our money. But he wants us. The Sadducee said, no, not doing that. The Pharisee said, nope, not doing that. The scribe said, nope, not doing that. I'll give my money. I'll make a show of it. I'll make sure that everybody knows how religious I am. And here's this woman with two copper coins. I I have a widow's mite in my office, a real one from Israel. And if you look at it, it it is the most nondescript kind of, it's like, how could that even have any value? They're like a little lump of copper. They're ugly. There were enough for maybe a glass of milk, perhaps a loaf of bread, maybe a dove for an offering, the least of the animals that you could offer to God. If you had nothing, you could offer a dove. And she says, I'm going to take the substance of my life. Once I put this in, I have nothing left. She said, I'm going to give God everything. Not for the poor. That would have been giving to people just like her. She gave everything she had to God himself. Believing that if she gave what she had to God, God would in turn give her everything she needs. Not because God demands us to give to him so he will give to us, but that's the way generosity works. You can't outgive God. 
And she says, Lord, I'm giving you everything. That's why Jesus says, truly, I say to you that this poor widow has put in more than all. For these out of their abundance. Oh, they're running around with their big sacks of money and throwing their coins in so they make plenty of noise so everybody can see it. But she put in her bios, her life. That's what God wants from us, church. He wants our lives. That's why we can render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's. Because at the end of the day, God also controls Caesar. God holds Caesar's life in his hand. God holds our country in his hand. God holds you in his hand. And what he's actually asking is for us to acknowledge with our bios, with our livelihood, all that we are, that he is Lord. He's asking us to give him everything. That's the lesson of this widow. Two very mighty mites. She wasn't begging. She wasn't pleading. She was giving herself. All that she had. Unlike the people that were making up this plot, she didn't care about Caesar. She cared about God. She didn't care if Caesar got all of it. As long as she was giving herself to the Lord. She had gained eternal life, I believe, in that moment. She had cast her cares upon him, for he cares for us. And I pray we do the same thing. That we get our eyes off of this earth, put them back onto Jesus, and leave them fixed there. Amen? Amen. We just stand and we'll close in prayer. If you're here today, and you've never cast yourself upon Jesus, I want to pray for you. If you'd bow your heads with me right now, please, if you're here and you know the Lord, would you be praying? And I just want to simply ask, if you're here today and you don't know Christ, and you've been holding out on him, you've been reserving those things for yourself, and you're tired of carrying the weight because it's too heavy, and you want the Lord to take your burdens because his yoke is easy, his burden is light. You want to know Jesus today? I'm going to just simply ask you, every eye closed, every head bowed, to just slip your hand up. I want to pray with you a simple prayer that you would receive Christ. Is there anyone at all that wants to know Jesus today? Don't be ashamed of him, because if you profess him before men, he will profess you before his Father in heaven. It's who he is. He's the lover of souls. Just want to make sure nobody leaves without Christ today. Give you a moment. Let's pray together. Father, as we either all know you, which I believe may be true, maybe there's someone holding out. Father God, we thank you that we are way more valued than sparrows and grass of the field and 
two copper coins. Lord, in fact, we are way more valuable than all of this earth combined. So much so that you sent your own son, our Lord Jesus, to this earth to give his life a ransom for us to pay the price of our sin. God, would we never forget that? Would we get our eyes off of Caesar? off of laws and politics and governance and these things that can't save these things that aren't eternal and get them back on heaven our mission and so God we pray that you would speak to us and encourage us and strengthen us Lord help us to keep the main thing the main thing you Jesus front and center in our lives We love you, we honor you, we bless you, and we ask all of this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Thanks for listening, and we hope you were encouraged by today's message. If you have any questions or just want to check us out, make sure to visit us at ccsouthbay.org. God bless you guys, and we'll see you next week.